Our first reading this morning comes from Psalm 137. Please join me in reading it responsively as it is printed. Alongside Babylon's streams, there we sat down, crying because we remembered Zion. We hung our lyres up in the trees there because that's where our captors asked us to sing. Our tormentors requested songs of joy. Sing us a song about Zion, they said. But how could we possibly sing the Lord's song on foreign soil? Jerusalem, if I forget you, let my strong hand wither. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. If I don't make Jerusalem my greatest joy. Lord, remember what the Edomites did on Jerusalem's dark day. Rip it down, rip it down, all the way to its foundations, they yelled. Daughter Babylon, you destroyer, a blessing on the one who pays you back the very deed you did to us, a blessing on the one who seizes your children and smashes them against the rock. This is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Our scripture reading this morning can be found on page 799 of the Red Bible on the back of the pew in front of you. I'll be reading from the Gospel of Luke, the 17th chapter, verses 5 through 10. Please stand as you're able for a reading from the Gospel. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. The Lord replied, if you had faith the size of a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. Would any of you say to your servant, who had just come in from the field after plowing or tending the sheep, come, sit down for dinner? Wouldn't you say instead, fix my dinner, put on the clothes of a table servant and wait on me while I eat and drink? After that, you can eat and drink. You won't thank the servant because the servant did what you asked, will you? In the same way, when you have done everything required of you, you should say, we servants deserve no special praise. We have only done our duty. This is the word of God for the people of God. Let us pray. Lord, may the words of our lips and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your our rock and our redeemer. Amen. World Communion Sunday has always been one of my favorite Sundays. Having grown up in India and lived for several years in the Philippines and in Switzerland, and having visited numerous other countries where I have the joy of partaking in communion on a Sunday, this day spiritually reconnects me with fellow believers I have known and joins me with millions and millions of Christians all around the world who are also partaking of the Lord's Supper. When I was a pastor of a small United Methodist congregation outside Hartford, Connecticut, almost three decades ago, part of our celebrations of World Communion Sunday included displaying cloth and clothing from different parts of the world in our church. Parishioners would bring beautiful pieces of cloth from various countries to lay on the altar for communion 
and a group of laity would arrange the cloth so all the pieces could be seen from where the congregation sat. Also, people would come dressed in clothing from different parts of the world. So we would have garments from Jamaica, from Nigeria, from Vietnam, from the Philippines, from Sri Lanka, and various other countries, brightening up the congregation as people joined together in worship. It was a very real reminder of both the variety and the interconnectedness of the worldwide body of Christ. While I do not want for a minute to detract from the wonderful vision of diversity and unity from my days as a pastor, in the decades since the 1990s, my thinking has become more complicated on the matter of Christian diversity. For I have also become aware of how that diversity can create incredible conflict and discord in the body of Christ. It has certainly created conflict and discord in the United Methodist Church, which is made up of members in Africa, Asia, and Europe, as well as the United States. So, besides an international, intercultural, worshiping congregation, another way to imagine World Communion Sunday is to think of it as a feast, where all the members of Christ's body are seated and eating together. We do, after all, speak of communion as a foretaste, a preview of the heavenly banquet, when we shall all be united for one great heavenly party. I can imagine a huge banquet table that stretches to all eternity. And I think of all the Christian sisters and brothers, past, present, and future, sitting down together to feast on the most incredible meal of their lives. But upon closer inspection, there is a palpable level of discontent at this feast because there is my strictly vegetarian, teetotaling Indian friend sitting next to an Australian who is ready to devour his generous portion of steak and beer. Oh my, that really turns her off. And there is a group of Ethiopian Orthodox digging in with their fingers into their food that is arranged on a common plate while a group of Europeans looks horrified as they politely pick up their knives and forks and complain about Americans who change their forks from left to the right hand. <laughs> Strangely, some Texans and Chinese seem to be getting along pretty well as they share different recipes for snake meat stew. They're even comparing Sichuan peppers with habanero peppers which were especially requested by the Mexicans. My colleague who grew up in Atlanta, however, asks to be moved away from the habaneros. It makes him sweat just to smell the hot peppers. Sorry, says St. Julian, this is the heavenly banquet. You gotta put up with Christians who drive you nuts. <laughs> if we think of World Communion Sunday as a time when Christians don't, simply sweetly join in some standardized liturgical bread and wine, 
And is that real wine or is it grape juice? But boisterously relish in the food that really makes them joyful. We have the recipe not just for massive confusion, but for deeply felt revulsion and disgust. The worldwide church certainly presents us with a picture of beautiful variety. But we need to admit that the church is also made up of people coming from incompatible backgrounds who just cannot understand each other and even cannot stand each other. And this incompatibility and misunderstanding do not simply apply to matters of taste and preference like food at a wedding feast. They extend to matters of ethics and belief and religious practice, the very stuff of our Christian faith. We really do not agree, and at times we ferociously disagree, on what constitute right and wrong actions, right and wrong understandings of God and the world, right and wrong ways to experience our faith. So, what can we do? Is there anything we can do to deal with deep cultural and ethnic and racial differences? And to think about this question at a very real and practical level, how can we at Decatur First United Methodist Church open ourselves to interacting with and even including in our fellowship people who are in some ways deeply different from us. Let me suggest three movements of the soul, as I call them, to begin a process of fellowship with members of the body of Christ whom we just cannot understand and perhaps cannot even tolerate. And let me use the psalm that was read this morning, that we read this morning. The first movement of the soul is one of intense listening. By this I mean that we open our ears and hearts to the other and listen as sympathetically as is humanly possible to how they understand and see the world. We keep ourselves from passing judgment. Listen if you can, for example, to Psalm 137, verse 9, which Joya read for us. A blessing on the one who seizes your children and smashes them against the rock. How could any Christian say such a thing? Why is that verse even in the Bible? To be honest, plenty of people have thought it should not be there. None other than John Wesley, one of the founders of the Methodist movement, had a list of Bible verses that should never be used in worship, and guess what? Psalm 137, verse 9 was on that list. The reason he wrote was that certain portions of Scripture were, as he said, highly improper for the mouth of a Christian congregation. In the year 1970, the first few verses of Psalm 137 by the waters of Babylon were put to music by a Rastafarian reggae group, the Melodians, and that version has been reused by a number of other singers, including the Swedish rock group ABBA. 
What is interesting is that the song ends not with the last verse of the psalm, Psalm 137, but from a verse, with a verse from Psalm 19. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord. The implication is that the last verse of Psalm 137, which says that infant killers are blessed, is not acceptable to the Lord. Interesting that John Wesley and a group of reggae songwriters, descendants of slaves themselves, would share similar sentiments about the last verse of Psalm 137. And to be frank, I quite agree with them. But what if I try to set aside my judgment, my judgment of right and wrong and listened intently to the original singers of that psalm? We are told in no uncertain terms who they are. They were Jewish captives, slaves, and prisoners of war in a foreign land called Babylon. Their life was filled with cruel misery. They had witnessed the utter devastation of their great and beautiful home city, Jerusalem. Raise it down, raise it down to the earth, said the Edomites. And now they were being taunted by their captors to sing songs from their homeland. Imagine, if you will, the horrors of 9-11, except that instead of two towers being hit, all of New York City was destroyed by an invading army, and its residents that were left alive taken into captivity in a foreign land to serve at the whim of the captors. Imagine that this enemy is so powerful that the rest of the United States could do nothing about it. And there in a foreign land, as captives and slaves, the enemy says to the New Yorkers, hey, why don't you sing us New York, New York? We love that song. <laughs> and so the surviving actors and singers from Broadway are forced to dance and sing New York, New York on stage with their enemies as their cruel audience. But in the privacy of their slave quarters, they write a different song. And that song comes out looking and sounding very much like Psalm 137. As I listen intently and sympathetically to Psalm 137 being softly and clandestinely sung, by abused and cruelly mistreated slaves and captives of war, I can start to understand how they would say, damn you Babylonians, happy is the one who takes your babies and dashes them against the rock. I have never been a slave, nor as far as I know, have my forebears ever been enslaved. I could never imagine myself saying that verse, but Jewish slaves in Babylon would utter those words. And I would be very surprised if less than two centuries ago, right here in our beloved state of Georgia, there weren't slaves who quietly sang the last verse of Psalm 137. 
and also if they were not slaves who sang instead. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Given the horror of Psalm 137, verse 9, I marvel that this verse has made its way into our sacred scriptures. Because after all, the scriptures are meant for us. The scriptures are meant for us. That is why this verse is so troubling. How could we ever say it? Blessed are the ones who smash your babies against the rocks. Yet what this verse tells us is that the us doesn't simply refer to the congregation in this building or to the people called Methodists, or to Protestants, or even to Christians in all our strange and bewildering variety. The psalm verse is found, after all, in the Hebrew Bible. The us includes people who are so different that we find their words offensive. The us, in fact, includes people whom we shall never completely understand. And that is the point of those incomprehensible passages in the Bible. They are a reminder of the incomprehensible members of the body of Christ. And what I must do is sit down with them and listen to them as they share stories and thoughts and desires and dreams and nightmares that I could never imagine and some of which I really cannot relate to. Yet such hard and intent listening is precisely what the meal is precisely what the meal we are preparing to use the image from today's gospel lesson calls us to do as servants literally slaves of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, I said there are three movements of the soul involved in engaging fellow Christians who are radically different from us. I've talked about one, but here we are 20 minutes into the sermon. There's still Holy Communion to get through. I forgot this is church, not an hour and 20 minute class at Candler. <laughs> be assured, the rest of what I'm going to say can be said very briefly because it follows on the movement of listening intently. After listening comes the second movement, which is sharing who we are with the other who cannot comprehend us, at least not comprehend us completely. What are the life experiences, the desires and fears, the traumas and ecstasies, the ordinary and the extraordinary that make up who we are? If the first movement is one of humbly receiving from others, the second movement is one of humbly giving to others. In this difficult take and give, give and take, what keeps us at the common table is not some naive belief that down at the, all at the bottom we are all the same. Rather, it is our profound faith that our God and Savior is a crucified Messiah whose broken life is in fact life-giving, who urges us all 
to feed one another with our broken lives. Do this in remembrance of me. It is such faith that can, in fact, perform miracles. The third movement of the soul is one of joint activity and mission and ministry, knowing who the other is, letting them know who we are. Both sides are in a position to enter each other's lives respectfully. We realize there are probably still some huge differences between us, but we have come to know also that there are important things we share. If nothing else, with faith, we share one another's stories. And so we can dare to start building a new future as the body of Christ empowered by the Holy Spirit. World Communion Sunday then comes as both threat and promise. It is a threat inasmuch as it challenges our desire to be content with ourselves and disconnected from those who are different from us. But it is a promise of a world where differences and commonalities are recognized and both of them are used for good. And it is the promise of food for the journey towards a future where all of creation will be, in the words of the Apostle Paul, set free from slavery to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of God's children. Amen. <laughs>